I'm going to be reading from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, and you can find that on page 7 of your orders of service. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne on his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And the second reading is taken from Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 23. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, thank you so much uh, for your patience and your grace toward me. Um, as I said last week, um, my best mate and his wife have been living with us uh, since February, uh, living in our lounge room across the hallway, as he, uh, Ben, receives palliative care. Um, we are told these are the last days, and on Thursday uh, last week, he um, uh, lost consciousness. Um, they've stopped all fluids and are just keeping him uh, comfortable with um, morphine and uh, phenobarbital and all sorts of other concoctions. Um, so I just can't leave the house. Uh, 
lots of people are coming over. We're singing to him. We're praying with him. We're reading him passages, um, trusting that somewhere in there he can he can still hear uh, familiar voices, familiar themes, and familiar songs. Um, but thank you for accepting uh, this way of doing things. Um, and what I want to do is um, uh, use um, a little bit of a message I gave on the same theme preached uh, last year in uh, St. Matthew's Manly, and they very kindly have given me the video footage of that. And I'm going to splice it up a little, um, especially for you guys um, at Church Hill and the Garrison uh, Church, um, and uh, offer some extra bits and try and try and improve it. I, uh, I hope that's okay. Um, Justin emailed me uh, some of the questions that were asked last week. And um, I thought maybe I'll just take a couple of minutes uh, to have a crack at them um, now. So last week we talked about uh, Jesus as healer, uh, the one who mends everything in the future kingdom. Um, and I talked about the evidence for Jesus as a healer. Uh, question number one was, uh, the other examples given for similar historical figures who were miracle workers uh, said um, there was only one source, one historical source. How many times were they each mentioned within their respective sources? So we talked about Rabbi Hanina, and um, uh, there's only uh, one reference to him in 130 years after, after his death. And he's uh, mentioned several times in that source, but his uh, miracle working mentioned just once. In the case of Apollonius of Tyana, uh, who died around the year 100, uh, it's 120 years later that we have our single source, a biography written about him, uh, that mentions his healing work. There are many stories of his healing work, but they're all from one uh, source. And that source doesn't have earlier sources within it. So um, uh, Hanina, 130 years before we get one source. Uh, uh, Apollonius of Tyana, uh, 120 years before we get one source. In the case of the Gospels, um, as I said, we have eight separate sources. Uh, and in those sources, uh, most of them anyway, there are multiple references to the miracles in each source. And these sources all come within 60 years. So from about 20 years after Jesus through to about 60 years. And um, for this reason, historians are convinced that um, Jesus must have done things everyone thought were miracles. Even if you don't believe in miracles, there's pretty good evidence that he did things people thought were miracles. I hope that uh, clarifies that question. Then someone asked, <clears throat> why did people wait so long, 50 to 60 years, to write about Jesus' miracles? If you saw something so miraculous, wouldn't you be tweeting about it as soon as you could? Uh, or is that just a modern day human trait? Uh, it's, a, it's a cool question. Um, well, it wasn't 50 to 60 years after Jesus. Um, our latest source, the Gospel of John, is probably, in the opinion of most of these scholars behind me, uh, was 60 years after Jesus, so written about the year 90. Um, but most of our sources come from um, the 50s uh, and 60s. And so we, we have uh, numerous sources that are much earlier than 50 or 60 years. And that is unusual uh, in the ancient world, uh, as I said in the previous question. Um, but why would they wait 20 years or 30 years uh, to write accounts of Jesus as healer? And the simple answer is, in those days, um, reading and writing was uh, a thing for the privileged. Only about 10% of people in the ancient Mediterranean 
uh, could read and write. And so um, this simply meant that um, your first instinct, if you wanted to spread a message, simply wasn't to write it down because that only gave you the reach to 10% of the population. If you want to reach the majority, you use oral tradition. And this is the case in um, uh, philosophers, um, school teachers. I mean, even school teachers that taught their kids to read and write still did most of their stuff by oral tradition, by memorization. Um, it was true in the Jewish synagogues. They memorized the sayings of the rabbis and it was true of the early Christians. Um, so this is nothing unusual. Um, it, it really is just a function of um, a culture that didn't um, see uh, written down as the best form of, of communicating with people. I guess it'd be a little bit like asking um, why uh, was some news event not put on the internet in 1990? You know, if only five or 10% of the population had the internet in 1990, I don't actually know my dates, but the internet was only just starting to get going. Um, your first instinct was not to put a, an important event on the internet in 1990, because that just only got you a very narrow band of, of elites uh, who, were, uh, who were on the internet. Um, so all in all, our sources for the historical Jesus as a healer are extremely good, extremely good. The third question was about demons. Um, someone said uh, that they're a, they're a doctor um, and they find it hard to understand uh, this aspect of the New Testament, Jesus um, healing someone and it being related to a demon and Jesus exercising, expelling the demon. Sometimes it seems that demons refer to illnesses, the questioner asks, like schizophrenia or seizures, but other times it clearly seems to be an evil force with no room for explaining it away. I'm still unsure how it relates to our modern world. Um, yeah, I mean, you put your finger on a really important uh, question. Um, it's probably fair to say that our world, um, our modern Australian context, only sees natural explanations for everything. For us, only matter is real. There's no other world. There, there's not two worlds. And we sometimes look back on ancient people like Jesus as ignoramuses because they believed that there were demon possessions. And because sometimes in the Gospels and elsewhere, uh, demon possession um, is, a, um, is manifested in what we would call insanity or epilepsy or seizures or physical illnesses, we think that they are ignorant of material reality, of medical explanations. They, are, they have to assign everything to spooks, right? That, that's what we say of the ancient world. It's actually mistaken. And because in the ancient world, they were well aware of medicine. Um, there were physicians in the ancient world, um, especially in the Greek speaking world. They, they knew well that there was a real bodily reality. You could get sick and there were certain things you could do to help make people better. And the New Testament seems to make this distinction between simple illnesses, which Jesus healed with no mention of um, demons and other conditions um, that uh, were ascribed to demons. And the Bible even can think of people being um, as insane or, or having some um, mental illness in some profound way as a simple mental illness and other times ascribe that same mental illness to a demon. So the reality is the ancient gospel writers, unlike us, um, saw a kind of uh, two levels. They believed in the material world. They believed some things were simply physical, but they also had this 
other insight that there is a spiritual dimension and sometimes even physical and mental ailments are demonic. There's another whole realm. And so they might say to us, we are the simplistic ones. We have narrowed everything to the physical, to the material. And they, I think, would have a very good argument for saying that is reductionistic and uh, frankly impossible. Um, it'd be lo lovely to have a to and fro about this, but it seems to me there is a wisdom in the, um, in the gospels and in ancient literature in really thinking there, is a, there are dark forces uh, in the world and they influence our world in, uh, in certain ways. There are the questions. Um, in week one, I dealt with Jesus as a teacher who taught about the love of enemies and took that all the way to the cross. And last week, um, Jesus the healer, whose healings were pictures of the restoration of all things in the future kingdom of God. It wasn't starting a faith healing program. It was um, offering a preview of the, of the great kingdom of God that would restore um, all things. But if I'm honest, it isn't simply Jesus the teacher and Jesus the healer who uh, sustains my mate Ben over the hallway. The thing that sustains him, um, and I've seen it up close for these last uh, four or five months, is that he knows Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, who gave his all for us in his death and his resurrection. And that means that Ben slipped into unconsciousness with an extraordinary rest, trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But there is lots of confusion uh, about uh, Jesus Christ. And so as I uh, pivot to uh, the sermon uh, I preached uh, last year at St. Matthew's Manly, uh, I wanna pick up with some of the modern impressions of Jesus before we sort of land on where the New Testament says our focus really ought to be. There are so many um, differing portraits of Jesus, impressions. You could even say projections that we have uh, about Jesus. You think of those 1960s, 70s films, which some of you have not had the pleasure of watching, uh, that portrayed Jesus as a kind of hippie figure, certainly white, uh, uh, blue eyes, and sort of hovered around, sort of above you know, the, the worries of the world. Uh, this was um, broken in, in its tradition by Martin Scorsese, the famous director, who uh, had this film, um, The Last Temptation of Christ, where Jesus appears as a kind of uh, raging, earthy, misunderstood prophet, sexually repressed as well. Um, Mel Gibson tried to sort of bring it back to... Um, Christianity by portraying Jesus in the film uh, The Passion of the Christ, where basically Jesus is beaten up for 90 minutes, if that's how you like your son of God, and that's the film to watch. Uh, interestingly, Mambo has their own Jesus as well. This is uh, the Mambo Jesus who's uh, at the footy, and uh, this is the miracle of the pies and the beer. And of course, some people, like our new atheist friends, reckon that Jesus may not have lived at all. Um, the temptation is to project onto Jesus our own preferences. And today uh, we begin with perhaps the most obvious of all the things you could say about Jesus, 
and also one of the most uh, misunderstood. It's the claim that he is the Christ, the Messiah. Um, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that uh, when I was growing up in a completely non-Christian household, I honestly thought Christ was Jesus' surname. Um, because people would talk about Jesus Christ this, Jesus Christ that, like you might say um, Bill Gates or Bruce Clark. Um, it just seemed like there had to have been uh, Mr. and Mrs. Christ, Grandpa Christ, and you know, down the Christ family tree you go. I had no idea at the time that Christ or Messiah uh, is a prestigious title for two religions, not just one. Uh, there is a Christ in Judaism, which is the first thing I want to explore before we even think about the Christ of Christianity. Every day, our Orthodox Jewish neighbors pray for the coming of a descendant of King David from 1000 BC, uh, who will establish Israel and give Israel peace and rule over all the nations. Um, here's something from the Siddur or Jewish prayer book that is one of the daily prayers our Orthodox Jew Jewish friends um, pray. And prayer number 15 says, the offspring of your servant David, may you speedily cause to flourish, for we hope for your salvation all day long. And in the um, grace that Orthodox uh, Jewish neighbors say um, over meals each day, there's an explicit reference to the Messiah. Have mercy, our God, on Israel, your people, on the monarchy of the house of David, your anointed. And we see here the all-important word, anointed. This is the word Mashiach in Hebrew, or Christos in Greek, Messiah, a Christ. And this idea of an anointed one, a Messiah or a Christ, goes back to the Jewish scriptures, or what Christians call the Old Testament. So King David himself, uh, 1000 BC, or about that, um, in Samuel 16, is anointed when he becomes king. The Lord said to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed, this is the word Mashiach or Christos, David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Um, the anointing is the anointing of a king who would rule on God's behalf. Now, uh, later prophets in Israel drew on this idea and predicted that there would one day come a truly anointed one who would have all of God's spirit to rescue Israel and rule the nations. For example, Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, that's David's family name, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. This is the Christ or Messiah that our Jewish neighbors 
the Orthodox Jewish neighbors anyway, pray for every day, long for. In the Jewish faith, the Christ or Messiah is the king descended from David and anointed by God to save Israel and rule the nations. And the thing is, it's only when we really get this that we can appreciate the scandal at the heart of the Christian faith. The claim that Jesus is this Messiah. He is Christos. And so let's pivot to Christ in Christianity. This is the claim at the heart of the Gospels, those first century biographies of his life. In fact, it almost literally is the heart of Mark's gospel. In uh, our passage today, in Mark chapter 8, the interesting thing is, if you um, unraveled an original scroll of Mark's gospel and folded it right in the middle, it would fall on our passage today, Mark chapter 8, where Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ. This is literally the heart of the gospel. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are Ho Christos, Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So Jesus asks them who they reckon he is. And it's a question you'd want to get right. I mean, they've seen for a couple of years by now, uh, Jesus teaching extraordinary things, um, healing people. They've gained an impression. And in the middle of his public ministry, he turns to them and he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter gets it right. Jesus is more than a teacher. A healer, he's more than a prophet. He is Christos. he is the Messiah. It is really difficult to exaggerate how big a deal this title is in the New Testament. Um, I mean, just to do a simple uh, word count and compare this word with lots of other really big ticket items in the New Testament, consider this. The word saviour appears 25 times in the New Testament. It's a, it's a really important idea, obviously. Uh, the word teacher, didaskalos, appears 50 times. It's pretty important. What about the word love, agape? It's 100 times, as you'd kind of expect. But Christos, Messiah, appears 500 times in the New Testament. It is a really big deal. And it's a claim that was heard well outside Christian circles. Non-Christians heard that people thought Jesus was the Christ. Here are a couple of really good examples from the ancient world, non-Christian texts. Uh, this is uh, Josephus in Jewish antiquities. He's a um, first century Jewish writer, not a Christian writer. And yet he mentions, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man. He was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was called the Christ. And the tribe of Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Almost sounds like he thinks Christianity will disappear any moment now. 
I think you'd get a shock how it all turned out. Here's uh, Tacitus, the greatest of ancient Rome's chroniclers. I mean, in classics, and ancient history departments, they rely on Tacitus more than probably any other writer from the period. But he mentions in passing that Christians derived their name from a man called Christ, who during the reign of Emperor Tiberius had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. The central unapologetic claim of Christianity is that Jesus is this descendant of King David, anointed by God to save Israel and rule the nations. Uh, Jesus is, according to Christianity, the Christ. The difference between the first century Jewish expectation uh, of who the Christ would be and the Christ that the Christians proclaimed as a result of what Jesus taught is pretty clear. Uh, Jesus said he would rule as Christ, not by the sword, but by a cross. He is Christ on a cross. Um, the historical thing to understand is that many in Jesus' day um, longed for a ruler who would conquer the Romans. The Romans had um, occupied Israel from 63 BC. And by the time of Jesus, people were fed up and wanted the Messiah to come and smash the sinners and establish Israel uh, as a place of peace and rule over the nations. And so Christ and Messiah was interpreted in a military fashion, even by many of Jesus' own disciples. Um, here's a good example. This is a manifesto uh, written by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem uh, about 50 BC, so just a decade or so after the Romans arrived. And it describes the contemporary Jewish hopes for uh, the Messiah. I got to play with this particular text called the Psalms of Solomon uh, some years ago. But here's the job description of the Messiah. See, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles, in righteousness to drive out the sinners, to smash the arrogance of sinners, there will be no unrighteousness among them in his days, for their king shall be the Lord Messiah. This is what Peter and no doubt some of the other disciples were hoping for in their Messiah. And that's why Peter can't cope with what Jesus says next in our passage. So Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah the Christ. Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him yet, because he's got a lot more to teach them about, about what this means. But then we read, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter was so taken by the military idea of a Messiah that he has the audacity to rebuke Jesus, whom he's just declared Messiah, 
when Jesus says he's going to die instead of conquer. Uh, Peter obviously was projecting onto Jesus his own preferences, something that's really easy to do. But he must have got the shock of his life when, according to this passage, um, Jesus turns his back on Peter. That's what's going on here, because Peter rebukes Jesus, and then it says Jesus turned to his disciples, in other words, put Peter to his back and said, get behind me, Satan. When the one you've just called Messiah says, get behind me, Satan, you know you're in trouble. (laughs) You've made a big mistake. I mean, the thing is, um, Peter doesn't have in mind the concerns of God, Jesus says, but earthly concerns, military concerns. Because the concern of God, according to Jesus, is that the Messiah would die. He would suffer and give his life on a cross because God doesn't want to destroy his enemies. He's not about conquering. He's about saving. He wants to welcome his own enemies into his family. This is why Jesus' mission was to die, not conquer. He was to bear the judgment the enemies of God deserve. Instead of seeing them conquered, he wanted to save them so they might be welcomed. You know, um, friends of mine have these um, mates in town who own a really posh uh, jewellery store. And uh, some years ago now, quite a few years ago now, um, this American gentleman walked into their store and asked if he could buy a pink argyle diamond. These things are worth about 20 grand. And they were the kind of shop that had that. And as they were doing the transaction and the guy was purchasing the diamond, the computer froze. And the American gentleman just leant over, uh, offered a bit of advice, and the computer came back to life. And the woman, this friend of my friend, uh, said, oh, you know a little about computers, do you? And he just smiled and uh, nodded and finished the transaction and walked out of the store. Only later, when they were looking through the receipts, did she zero in on the name of the person she'd just sold this to. Um, She had literally just sold a pink argyle diamond to a Mr. Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft. And um, you can imagine she felt a little silly for having asked him, do you know a little about computers, when this is the guy who changed the computer industry uh, worldwide. I mean, that's a true story, but it also reminds me of something that is equally true of our topic. Uh, People have low estimations of Jesus when he's right in front of them. Uh, Some people just underestimate uh, Jesus, think of him as a life coach or a teacher or something. Others um, have a reverence for Jesus, maybe even think of him as divine, but have overlooked that his real mission was to die and rise for us, not to just be the conqueror, the Lord, but to save us and welcome us into God's family. Um, Both are projections onto Jesus of our own thoughts and preferences. When the truth is, Jesus as the Christ has all of the authority of God and all of the love of someone who would give himself for us so that we'd be welcomed into God's kingdom. Well, I want to give the last word, uh, not to my best mate uh, over in the lounge room, um, but to Ayesha. Um, Ayesha is another friend 
Um, I can't uh, show you her full face or give you her real name because she comes from a country um, in which it's forbidden to convert to Christianity. Um, but uh, suffice to say, um, this is a woman of incredible intelligence who comes from a very different faith in which the idea of God as majestic was number one. And she really struggled to get her head around the notion that God would enter into the world in Jesus, the Messiah, um, who would then give himself on a cross to atone for our sins. This was the big barrier for her. But as she investigated it, both historically and psychologically and emotionally, she came to believe not only that there was powerful evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus died and rose again, but that this was her only hope, that God had come to make amends for her wrongdoing. I interviewed her a number of years ago, shortly after she had become a Christian. And uh, I think the way she puts this uh, is extraordinary. In my mind, um, Islam and Sharia was an idealistic way to live, which could lead you to heaven on earth. And that's what we're attempting. So to, it, it took a long period of time for me to realize that laws do not change the core of what a person is. And that was one of the bigger changes in my thinking. So what was it that tipped you over the edge to say, oh my goodness, I'm a Christian? I tried really hard to be good <laughs> um, for, for around a month when I was still wrestling and everything. You managed a month me. being really good, did you? I, I, I tried. I was, I'm very stubborn. <laughs> And I tried, okay, tomorrow I'm not going to be annoyed by this colleague of mine or I'm going to be more patient. And I came home and I said, I can't do it. And it took a lot of convincing for me to realize that I'm not as good as I think I am. And I then took communion at, at um, this church. And I remember because I was crying in the pews and I was trying to hide my face. <laughs> But I was utterly broken at that point. So. And that was a kind of moment where you said, you can't save yourself, but here is the gift yeah. that's yours. And how often do you get a God trying to make amends for what you've done? I love those words. How often do you get a God who tries to make amends for what we have done? The answer to that question is just once in the history of ideas. God in Jesus, the Messiah, the powerful anointed one, whose mission was not to conquer, was not to overthrow and condemn, whose mission was to give himself on a cross for us and rise again so that all of us, Aisha, Ben, me, you, might know life forever. God bless.